Hey, y'all. Welcome to the Marty Smith America podcast. This is the week of what? July 28th? Is, it, is that right, Travis? It is July 28th right now. And we have an amazing show today for you. One we taped a couple months ago, actually, with TNT NBA host Ernie Johnson. And I've wanted to interview Ernie for a very long time. I met him actually in person for the first time several years back when Alabama and Georgia played one another in the national championship game, college football playoff. And before that game, Ernie gave the invocation. Uh, He is a man of faith, great faith, and uh, someone that I have just admired very deeply for a very long time. So I asked Travis to run him down and ask him if he might spend a bit of time with me, and I'm so glad that he said yes because I'm a better man for it. So is Travis for that matter. It offered me perspective that I try to carry at the forefront of my mind, but sometimes I get caught up in things that just don't matter. And Ernie has a a beautiful way, not only in the way that he speaks of his life, but the way he lives his life that reminds you uh, to live each day where your feet are, to be where your feet are. And that's very hard for most of us to do. And Ernie's really good at it. And uh, again, we've been sitting on this interview for a bit, and we're thrilled to share it with you now. Before we get to Ernie, the first major of 2020 is finally here. Yes. Hallelujah. Get exclusive coverage of the PGA Championship August 6th through 9th on ESPN and ESPN+. And since we know that you've been missing golf, we at ESPN Audio teamed up with our friends at the PGA to give you all something huge to look forward to next year in 2021. This is your chance to win a VIP experience to the 2021 PGA Championship at the world-class Kiowa Island Golf Resort. The four-day, three-night grand prize package is stupid. It includes round-trip air and hotel at the Sanctuary, which just happens to be a five-star oceanfront hotel on the island, two tickets to the PGA Chalet, and two pairs of Wanamaker Club tickets. Two free, let me repeat that, free year-long subscriptions to ESPN+. Stream live coverage of featured holes every weekend on ESPN+. Win a year of exclusive live sports, originals, and more with ESPN+. For your chance to win, go to www.espnradiosweeps.com to enter now through August 11th. Limit to one entry. One grand prize winner will be selected. Just one of y'all. What an unbelievable opportunity. And now... Here is my conversation with TNT NBA host, Ernie Johnson. It is difficult for me to describe the admiration that I have for this man, for his example and perspective and the conversations that he and I have had in the past about everything from his mentorship of of me when I had moments of insecurity to our faith to mistakes we want back and it's funny how people see the polished product they don't see all the grinding that smooths the edges to produce that shine 
And that's kind of where I want to start is those kind of rougher edges. What made you as a young person want to become a broadcaster? I think the fact that I got cut by uh, the University of Georgia baseball team, that's that's what did it, uh, Marty. <laughs> I was, you know, I had, uh, as I tell people, I walked on at, at UGA as a freshman and then was told to walk off as a sophomore. And when that <laughs> happens, when that happens, it kind of makes you focus on, uh, okay, what is there outside of uh, this dream of being a big leaguer, you know? So, uh, and I, I had always kind of pictured myself as an English teacher and a baseball coach. And I said, cause that all, I said, you know, cause I, I was an English major at the time. And I said, uh, yeah, well, that would keep my hand in baseball too. But, you know, growing up when your dad's doing play by play for a thousand years for the Atlanta Braves, you're kind of, uh, you're exposed to that You kind of see what that's about. And even though it wasn't really anything that I thought about pursuing seriously, I just said, you know what, I'm going to give that a look. And, you know, I'm going to try to work at the, at the campus radio station at the University of Georgia and just see if I like it. And, uh, you know, it gets its hooks in you, Marty. And when that happens, that's, uh, that's, when I was, uh, that's when I was ready to go. It's amazing how many parallels our paths have. Same, my story is the exact same story. I actually played college baseball as a freshman. I transferred schools. I knew I was going to play at the next school and was asked to go to a walk-on tryout and knew I was going to be the best player in that tryout, and then I didn't make the team. <laughs> and, so, you know, all of a sudden you go, oh, okay, all I've ever cared about is sports and girls. Uh-huh. And that's part that's – a, that's a very distinct – part of my identity and now I don't have that identity anymore so what now and you know then I had someone say I needed to come with her to work as a student assistant at the sports information office and with my conceited self I was like I'm a boss I'm not a a, no stat taker they take stats on me (laughs) and it's funny isn't it funny how that's, that's, that's the Lord man you know like what you you nor I would be sitting here had we made those teams that's exactly the point too, because if you, you know, I kind of, I got over, I got over the fact that I got cut, you know, it's like uh, not everybody in my family did. They were kind of, they were really you know, bummed. It's like, Oh man, how can you? And, and I, I was just honest with myself. I was, whereas you said, Oh yeah, I'm, I'm obviously going to make this team. I was like, man, I'm, you know, I'm over my skis here as a freshman getting any playing time at all. I said, so, uh, you know, when I saw the, talent level I was like I'm not as good as these guys you know I I do love playing the game but I saw a lot of difference between guys who had major league written on them and guys like me who who walked on as freshmen but yeah I mean things do turn out don't they and I think that uh, you know I wouldn't change a thing out of that story you know you a moment ago were discussing the University of Georgia and and you really were very active in chasing the dream while you were at UGA, while your buddies were out partying or whatever, you start working at the radio station. What made that the path? I think it's whatever is available. Back then, Marty, it's so different. I mean, I mean, these days, you know, all the, all these kids got YouTube channels and they've got uh, and they've got blogs and podcasts. And I mean, they can put them. These days, kids can put themselves on camera every day if they want. And I I encourage them to do that if that's 
you know, if you're going to go down this path, get those reps that way. I mean, you know, let's let people see it. Let, let them see how comfortable you are on camera, that kind of thing. But back when back in, you know, 78, when I graduated, you know, and, and that's 1978, I was, you know, I'm. Um, I'm just looking for whatever I can do. I mean, I do a radio internship in Rome, Georgia, when I'm still in school, and I'm living in a trailer at a, and working at a country radio station, and and I'm just trying to soak it all up and and learn on the go. So I'm learning things um, away from the classroom. You know, uh, when I went back to school for my junior year, and I'm working at FM Rock Station in Athens. And I'm and I'm doing drive time news and sports, you know, in the morning and in the afternoon, and then I'm going to school again. I'm going to class, but I've been doing the stuff that they're being taught how to do. And so I thought it put me a leg up, you know. You know, as as far as as competitive as this business is, I felt like I was gaining an advantage there. So um, look, I, I don't get me wrong. I did my share of partying in Athens. Now you can't you can't go to the University <laughs> of Georgia and be living in a cocoon, but I, I was able to prioritize that once, you know, once I got into my major field of study, once I was into journalism, it was like, there's going to be a time where I can go out and I can have fun with my buddies, but you know, they're going to be nights. I got to go to Watkinsville and go to the County commission meeting. Okay. So I'm, I'm, you guys, I'm not going to be able to hang with you. I got to, I got to cover the water and sewer authority, but all of that stuff paid off. It all paid dividends. I mean, all the things that I've learned at every stop, uh, all of those things are important. You can laugh at them. You know, you can look back and laugh at making $10,000 anchor in the news and making Georgia. But you can also remember all the experiences there. And the first time you tried this, and the first time you did this, and the first time you edited that. I mean, it, it's all it's all big. How did those days shape you, those uh early local TV days you just discussed? I think you value everything that you're able to do because they let you do everything. You know, I'm in the 145th market out of 200 and something. So, so Macon's a small market. A lot of people start there and, and they're used to hiring kids out of school, not having to pay them a whole lot, letting them get their feet wet, letting them make mistakes. And, and, um, and I think, um, what it what it teaches you first is okay am I gonna am I gonna be satisfied with this or is this gonna make me work harder to get to the next place and I think that's what it you know that I think it it even sharpens your work ethic, work ethic even more uh, because you say okay I put a tape together that you know nobody else looked at you know no other station thought was appealing enough to hire you okay I need to work harder I need to be better you know how do I improve and then somebody else hires you, and then and then all of a sudden you're in Atlanta, and then all of a sudden the folks at Turner are calling. So those are very formative years, and I think, um, you know, I think the key to the whole thing is no matter where you are, be the absolute best you can be, no matter what it is. You know, it's not that this was not where I wanted to be ultimately when I was anchoring the news in Bacon, but doggone it, I was going to be as the hardest guy, hardest worker in the room, and I was going to be. I was going to be the very best I could be for a guy who had no experience and and uh, uh, was ex- you know was going through on-air mistakes and that kind of thing for the first time you know so it does it it 
it's just one of the building blocks. And, and you can never look at any stop and say, well, I didn't learn anything there. Because if you, if you weren't learning anything there, then you weren't trying. And I know it's a constant work in progress. We evolve every day as broadcasters. It's never really a finished product. But at what point did you know that you'd reached a place of confidence that I've gotten pretty good at this? Um, you know, I think, I think it comes at different times in your career. I mean, you know, there were times where you would like in Spartanburg, Marty, I do, I might come in from doing a story and, and think, you know what, that was, that was pretty good. I, you know, I think I had some really good sound bites in that thing. And I think I told the story and I think it made sense. And, and so you feel like, you know, I'm, if I can, if I can replicate that every time I go out and do a story, I, maybe I'm, maybe I'm going to be okay. Uh, so you get something like that. And then you, when you start anchoring on a consistent basis and I'm anchoring the weekend sports in Atlanta, um, you know, and I was like, there was that feeling there too. Like I can be okay at this, you know, in, in the midst of some, some real bombs of, that we that you put on the air. Then there were a few that were like, man, that was a good sports cast because you have to be your own worst critic and, and brutally honest. And that means if you, you, you can watch and say, you know, that was pretty good. But you also got to be able to sit there and say, boy, was that horrible. I'm glad. I hope nobody was watching. You know, I hope there was a big game on another station and everybody <laughs> was watching it, not watching me. Um, but I think, but I think the work at Turner, I think when through all those years, kind of sometimes doing the show by myself and then, you know, maybe I'd have Reggie Theus or Cheryl Miller or Dick Versace with me and then Kenny came along. I think those... Uh, in, in terms of a comfort level, that's where it really kicked in. And, and in terms of a look, I'm ready for anything. You know, that, and sometimes you you do have that feeling. It's it, because it's because it's knowledge that comes to you from years of experience. Where I say, you know what? I now I realize that preparation is the key to the whole thing. Maybe I didn't always realize that early on, but then it's like I realize now that if I'm prepared then I'm not going to be nervous. And, I, and I'm going to say, hey, anything you guys want to throw at me, if somebody wants to break a backboard and i got to fill for a half hour, I can do it. So that's, that's what comes with, uh, you know, uh, the experience of, of years and years being on there, that you just can't, you can't substitute for that. You just got to put in the reps. And that's what, you know, that's what comes with the years and years of doing this. I say all the time, life is context and repetition. Yeah, I mean, that's 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 the bare bones of it, especially in our business. And just so you know, kind of where this where this podcast came from, the the thought to have you on as a guest came from me chatting with Reese Davis and how integral he was in offering me insight and some level of self confidence when I was asked to host SEC Nation last year, and I also called you. Yeah. And you gave me some nuggets of information and, and thought processes that I took into that assignment and I, uh, for someone who'd never hosted anything in his life. And that was it. I mean, be prepared. Prepare well, to the point where even though you've never 
had to get to break while making sure that sponsor read was perfect because that company pays a lot of money. You you have the confidence that what's coming out of your mouth is neither ill-advised nor incorrect. And even if it might be a little wonky, it's live TV, man. Yeah. Yeah. And, and people aren't looking, aren't watching this because they want to see a Hollywood production that every line is rehearsed and it's and this has to be perfect and this it's like you're watching guys hanging out you know men and women talking football talking basketball talking baseball whatever and um and that's the feel we've always wanted to have on the inside the nba show it's it's four guys sitting around talking hoop um but the points you bring out that that that's really cool and i love the fact that you talk to reese you know and uh and i remember the conversation that we had about just about the dynamic of, you know, you move from you, you're the guy who's analyzing to you're the guy who's hearing a producer talk to you and say, okay, after he gets finished or she gets done, that you throw to this and you're trying to keep all that traffic straight. But it's the same way. Like when I started doing golf in the mid nineties, the first time I did a golf tournament was the PGA championship out of Riviera. And all I was going to be doing those first two days is like, filling in here and there when Vern Lundquist needed a break. And, and here's Vern, he and I, he and I sit in the golf cart out there at Riviera. And I just said, hey, man, what, what can you tell me? What can you tell me about what I'm going to get into here? I said, cause I've done a lot of stuff, but I haven't done the golf and I haven't, and I haven't certainly haven't been sitting in the 18th tower with the, the legendary Frank Cherkinian, who's going <laughs> to be in my ear, you know, and, 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 Doc, I mean, Vern couldn't have been more gracious. I mean, he was just, he was just wonderful. He was Uncle Vern, man. It was just like, he's sitting here, you know, just, just letting me know what, what he, how he views an A or you're just going to be a caption writer. Don't, don't get into a, a big involved story. There's so many golf shots they're going to be throwing at you. And you're going to be having to throw to the other, you know, announcers and just, you're a caption writer. And it meant the world that he would, that he would take the time with me when I asked him to, to give me some advice. And I think we all, it behooves all of us to do that for everybody in the business. I mean, we're, you know, this is a, this is a different line of work. You know, a lot of folks out there watching and say, Oh, I could do that. Um, but it's like, you don't know till you've sat in that chair and felt, you know, like the eyes of the world on you <laughs> saying, don't screw this up. And so I think it, it, I think it really helps all of us to, to kind of help each other out any, any way we can. Yeah. I've, I've never had a baseline anxiety level every day. Like I did during the initial couple of weeks of that assignment, I just stayed stressed <laughs> out and I was trying so hard not to, I kept yeah. telling myself that I was prepared for it. I had some of my best friends sitting beside me on that panel who I knew would put me up on their broad shouldered backs and carry me. But I was in my own head at times. And then when it finally made sense and all that traffic you were discussing made sense and I was starting to be able to anticipate what was coming next, everything changed. Yeah. And I just, uh, again, context and repetition. That's what it's, it is. That's so well said. That's it's absolutely, it's absolutely perfect. Uh, because uh, you know, because the 
there's there's first times for everything, and you and you remember those times too. You know, first time you're anchoring the news and they roll the wrong tape. Okay, right. Uh, you, you know, do, you know when you're talking about a city council meeting and then footage of a crime scene shows up and you're, you know, now <laughs> do you just take your mic off and run screaming from the room and say I don't want to do this, or do you, or do you somehow muddle through it, you know? And and I think that's uh, it's only you only get that you only get that by sitting in there and doing it, you know, with the red light on. You know, we've been we've been watching the last dance for the last five weeks, and it's just brilliant in every way. But it reminded me what difficulty there must be for Michael Jordan's children, in a lot of ways, to be Michael Jordan's children, and a couple of them followed him into the game at which he was the greatest that ever did it. So, I wonder what it must have been like for you to follow a famous father into the arena in which so many yeah. people knew him and lauded him and admired him. Yeah, I mean, it was, um, it had its moments, um, Marty, because, uh, you know, uh, down here in the Atlanta area, um, and because of the superstation, I mean, my, uh, you know, people watch the Braves all over, just like they watch the Cubs. That's right. They were just the, those two superstations. So, you know, Atlanta became America's team. And, and so my dad was really... Um, well loved, uh, especially in the South, because a lot of times he'd be doing radio, you know, even before the TBS days. You know, people have had their transistors out on the on the back porch and listening to Ernie and Milo do the Braves and that kind of thing. So um, it was it was one of those things where it would it would show itself from time to time, even when you know if. If I made an all-star team as a little leaguer, you know, oh, he only made the all-stars because his dad is the Braves announcer. You know, right. you hear that, you know, and he's only doing this because his dad is, you know, and and so you kind of got used to that, um, and and you and you came to expect it from time to time. Um, but what I've always remembered is that is that you have to you are going to have to make your own way. You know, you're going to have to prove that you deserve the next job and, and uh, this promotion or whatever. I mean, it's like, you know, you'd be silly. You'd be silly not to, you know, if you're the announcer, the son of the announcer for the Atlanta Braves and he's got a buddy who's, uh, you know, does the hiring in a, you know, that's like how I got my internship in Rome, Georgia, you know, because they were on the Braves radio network. And, and my dad was like, hey, you got any internships over there? I said, oh, yeah, well, we got something for the summer. You'd be crazy to turn that down. You know, it's just, you know, the, there are things that happen in your life and you're in a certain place where certain things are going to present themselves. And and if I were if I were to say, no, I'm. I don't, I've got to get an internship on my own. I look. I'm all. I'm all the time asked by folks, "Hey, I, you know, my son is this, and I'm sure I'll put in a good word for him. No, that's fine." But the but the thing about about my dad was, and I had the chance to work with him in the mid '90s, you know, and and that came out of the blue because he had been retired, and then they 
he came out of retirement to do a game a week on Sports South, the regional cable, and and then they asked me, hey, when your schedule allows, would you like to work with your dad? And I was like, yeah, I'd like to work with my dad. And I, and and it was awesome, Marty, and it was intimidating as can be. And it was like all I wanted to do was make sure that that when the game was completed, that he was still sitting there, that he hadn't bailed in the sixth inning and said, oh, I can't, you know, I'm, I can't put up with this kid, <laughs> you know. I've got a reputation to uphold. You know, it was it was just it was such a rich time, and so uh, no matter who I work with, uh, and no matter what events I ever get to do, nothing will top that. Nothing will top being on Sports South on Wednesday nights back in the '90s, uh, sitting shoulder to shoulder with my dad, because I realized that not everybody has that that kind of a relationship with their dad. Not everybody has the opportunity to do that. There are some folks who wouldn't want to do that. And I get that. Um, but for me, uh, to work with a guy who was, uh, you know, my best friend and the best man at my wedding and to be able to sit there and call baseball games with him, come on. It's, that was the best, the best. Every That leads to my next question, and it's something that I carry within me every day, and that is that every son – yearns for their father's favor. It's a basic human emotion for young boys and teenage boys and grown men that they want to make their dads proud. What sense yeah. of validation did you feel working with him on those broadcasts? Um, I got, I, I certainly got that. I certainly, you know what I love, you know, when, was when he would just, and he, and he never went overboard with any kind of like, uh, you know, praise or adulation or backslapping, but you know, you know, something would happen on the field. We'd have a good exchange or something. And he'd give me a wink, you know, and or after the or game or after the game, just you know, slap you on the butt like you had just knocked in a you know knocked in a run, you know, like he's the first base coach and he gave you a slap on the butt and hey, anyway, and that was those were the things that were tremendous, um, and. Um, it was, you know, I'm just, I'm glad that he wanted to do it. You know, I'm glad that, that he was open to working with me, who, who didn't have much play-by-play -play experience at that point in my career. Um, and, I, and I appreciated that. And, and you know, I was, I was able to watch firsthand, you know, the preparation that he always put into every broadcast and see him hours before the first pitch in the press room going over his notes, you know, we all have different ways that we prepare, but, but that was always it. And, and, and look, to be able to work with a guy after learning from him all those years, just watching from a distance, watching from the back of the broadcast booth, watching how he treated people, watching how he, watching how he regarded his job and that it didn't make him special because, because he was a broadcaster, you know, he just, he was just grateful that, man, Baseball is what he's always loved, and now it's what he's able to do for a living. And and so that was the thing. I mean, in this in this business full of uh, egos run amok, uh, he was just a throwback to just he was good old Ernie, you know. And and what you saw on the air was exactly what you get in person. And so if you don't learn from that when you're when you're tagging along, uh, then your eyes and ears aren't open.
swear it's almost like you and I talked before I prepared for this because that too what you just said leads me right into my next question which is the egocentric me first business in which we work and for a lot of us I say this all the time about Lainey my wife I don't have anyone who could possibly be a better sounding board when I am filled up with insecurity or an emotion like that, that that comes with the emotional ebbs and flows that is this business. How has your wife impacted your daily walk through our profession? Well, you know, she's the best because uh, we it'll be 38 years we've been married in, in August. Awesome. And and you know you know why we've been married 38 years? Because she's not a sports fan. And so we never have to, you know, I've never come back from a telecast or from a studio show or from a, from doing a baseball game where she said, can you believe the Orioles hit and run in the bottom of the sixth? You know, that's never, that's never been a question. I mean, Marty, Marty, and I told somebody this story the other day, my wife, when back in the nineties, late nineties, I was going to mobile to work the senior ball. Uh, because TBS had it, and, and I was going to do the pregame show work with Marty Schottenheimer. And and I told my wife, I called her from Mobile, she said, why are you there again? And I said, for the senior bowl. And she said, isn't that dangerous? And I said, what are you talking about? And she, she did. She thought it was for senior citizens. She oh thought it gosh, was seniors. Awesome. She said, aren't they afraid they're going to get hurt? And I said, no. It's, it's, and I, she, I said, ho, ho, ho seniors college seniors oh okay i get it uh, so so that's that's the kind of sports fan i'm i'm, I'm married to and Dang. and and what's and what's great and i tell people look i'm a sportscaster my wife's a world changer marty you know she's devoted her life to to treating um uh, addicts to fighting child sex trafficking you know that's that's been her you know she's the one who who started our started us talking about adoption way back when after we'd had two kids she's the one who said we need to go to Romania and adopt you know it's like she's the world changer and so that's what that's what keeps me grounded and keeps my world from spinning off its axis I'm not going to get all I'm not going to get all out of out of shape because I botched a highlight you know I'm coming home and I'm saying um I'm seeing my family and I'm seeing this wife who's constantly thinking about how are we going to make the world better? You know? And so, uh, you know, it, and it took a while for me to get there. You know, I, I bought into this whole egocentric, Hey, it's all about me kind of, you know, let's move up the ladder thing for a long time before I was kind of like, let's not, uh, let's not get, get this to the point where you think the world is spinning around you. You know, and and that's one thing my wife always brought um, home to me so strongly is that how are we going to make somebody else's world better? I love that. And I say that all the time about Lainey, too, is the perspective that she offers, because to your point, my wife is not a sports fanatic in any stretch either. She has been completely undaunted and champions everything I do for me, not for what for who I am, not what I am. And that perspective that she offers me when I think something is so vitally important and she's just, you know, kind of shrugs her shoulders. Uh, it's beautiful perspective. I, I mean, it's, yeah. I could not, I could not, I could not begin to encapsulate how many times 
that has jerked a knot in my ass. That, <laughs> man, it's just not that. That's just not that big a deal. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it's, no, it's I've, awesome. I've been I've been down that road many many times, and she you know she knows exactly what to say, and she's she's you know encouraging when you know she'll watch some shows or watch a replay of something and. And, and be totally honest with me. Yeah, I kind of like that. That one kind of lost me, and I. And it's like, and that's fine. But we always we, we we both realize that this this job is not who I am. It's what I do, you know. And I think as long as we keep that front and center, um, then perspective is easier to maintain. You noted uh, the adoption that uh, your son Michael. Um, I'm curious how he has, over the years, impacted your worldview. Well, I think he's impacted uh, the entire family's worldview. And one, you know, look when you have when you have a couple of kids like Cheryl and I had, you know, Eric and Maggie uh, back in the '80s, in '84 and in '87, and then we adopted Michael in '91, Carmen in '93, and. Ashley and Allison, we adopted about 10 years ago. Um, but I think what what Michael and and Carmen um, demonstrated to Eric and Maggie was that, look, not everywhere. The world is not just, you know, happy meals and uh, Toys R Us. Okay. There were places where um, kids are struggling. There are, there, there are places where if you have a handicap, you're forgotten. You know, and I think they, uh, it was an eye opener for them, you know, to see, wow, this is what a background for this kid from Romania. You know, he was, a, he was abandoned in a park when, and found when he was a day old. And, and then he's been in an orphanage ever since and he can't walk and he, and he can't talk. And, you know, and they just add automatically from day one, just, just took him in and loved on him. You know, there was never a, oh, he's adopted. It was like, no, this is my brother. And so um, it was that way with, with both Michael and, and Carmen from Paraguay in 93. Um, but I think what what Michael has done, um, it, it just has proven to me, and, and I tell people, look, there's value in everybody, Marty. That's, you, know, you, you could look at Michael from the outside and say, um, especially in those early years, man, uh, you you would be you would be taken more by what his inabilities than his abilities. But you know, uh, he gets diagnosed with muscular dystrophy, and then he goes in a wheelchair, and 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 um, there's no you know there's no cure for muscular dystrophy. So so you kind of know how the story is going to end. You just don't know when that's when it's going to happen, but you see his spirit and you see um, what he's able to do and how he gets through to people. And you say, there's value in everybody. We don't have to, we don't have to play by the same rules, but you have to be intentional about finding that value. You know, at a high school basketball coach, you put him on his basketball team hmm. because he loved how he said, uh, love you too to people. He said, all I want, to, all I want Michael to do is teach my kids maximum effort and having a heart for others you know and so you know you're sitting here and saying this is the this is the little boy who uh 
a nurse at an orphanage in Romania told my wife, don't take this boy. He's no good before my, before my wife adopted him. And it's like, how do you go from this boy's no good to he's teaching a high school about maximum effort and loving one another. It's Man. like, now that's what a that's, legacy. That's awesome. Yeah, that is, that is. I mean, that's, there's value in everybody. Um, you just have to be able to, have to be able to look for it. You have to be able to find it um, and, and have to have that, not, uh, that, that, like, that instinct to say, I know there's something in you. There's greatness in you, and I'm going to find it uh, and, and celebrate it. And, and that's kind of what, what Michael's life has been about. He's no good. It's amazing yeah. what, what folks with, with intellectual disabilities or some sort of special need battle every single day you know so many of them are told you can't you'll never you're not good enough don't try yeah. and what they are is unbelievable lights in the world I, I can't what what was it like for you and for cheryl when michael said his own name for the first time wasn't he eight years oh, old we, yeah yeah we were stunned i mean it was you know because we've been going to these speech therapy classes you know and and he had so many developmental delays and, and he had some autistic qualities and he had, you know, physical problems. Um, and we saw them trying to work with him and trying to get him to speak. And he would still make some noises, but he was like eight years old. And, you know, he's sitting in the back seat one day and he just says, Mike. And <laughs> we were like, oh, hold on, you know, stop the car. What? Mike. <laughs> And 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 so from that, you know, from starting right there, he says his his name Mike, and and then it was it was like that it just opened up kind of a uh, a door for him um, to begin speaking the language. And again, it's not he's he's still he's 31 years old now. He still speaks in very broken sentences and that kind of thing, and and likes to you know talk about cars and that but it's amazing that's the amazing thing like he has this encyclopedic or you know knowledge of automobiles even though he really can't read per se but he's seen pictures and and he's hearing things and you read to him and then he he just remembers everything it's an it's a fascinating thing to behold um but you know he marty is every time you meet you he just wants to he just wants to ask you what you drive and ask you a few questions about it like GPS, yes, it does. Uh, AMFM, <laughs> yes, it does. CD player, yeah. And and then you can see him six years later, um, and he will tell you what you drive and what wow. color it was. I mean, that's crazy. It's uh, but he still does that all the time. And so it's like it's like um, sometimes his his nighttime stories, you know, talk about daddy's old cars. And I say, okay, and and it's not me talking. He lists them. As soon as you I mark, you had <laughs> and you had a Chevrolet Monza, and <laughs> so he just goes, he goes down this list, and and it's uh, it's it's engaging and it's endearing and it's like, uh, you know, for all the things that we've gone through with him, it's um, it is still. Uh, an incredible payoff to be able to wake up in the morning and see this uh, this kid. He's a miracle. I mean, it, there's no way he sh he should be 31 years old with what he's been through. But uh, I see a miracle every day.
I've kept you way too long here, but I have a couple more before I let you hop. And you, you've used your platform as a broadcaster and as a forward-facing person in, in a global sport to, to do so many amazing things and, and, and be such an amazing example for other people. And one of those things that, that you've used that platform for is staring cancer right in the eye and being and and being an ambassador for other people who battle it. How did your battle with non-Hodgkin's lymphoma change you? Um, I mean, I think it, I think it gives you pause to consider your mortality when you, when you hear that word. I mean, that was, you know, back in 2003 when I was, um, when I was diagnosed and you, um, you know, it's one of those things that uh, kind of rocks you. Um, and I was treated in 2006 with uh, six rounds of chemo and uh, have been in remission from that ever since. But I think, um, you know, people have said, hey, that shake your faith. And I said, no, it just, you know, it, it, it reinforced my faith. Uh, you know, I said, you know, that... Uh, it, it, it gave way to a mantra of mine, which is trust God, period. You know, it's it's not, I'm going to trust God if this next test comes back the way I need it to, or I'm going to trust God if this goes away, or I'll trust God when. It says, I'm just, I'm just going to trust God, period. That, you know, like, this, none of this stuff happened when he had his back turned, and all of a sudden he's, oh, wow, wow, Ernie Johnson just got cancer. How the heck did that happen? No, I mean... This was not a. This is not a situation of why did this happen. It's, it's how uh, is how's God going to use this? And I think I've gotten answers to that by the people that I've met, the people I've been able to try to encourage through the years. Um, you know, because what you'll find, uh, what I found is, you know, being in this club, is that I get phone calls all the time from somebody who says, "Hey, look, a buddy of mine just got diagnosed, and he's." He may have to start chemo. Could you give him a call? And I and I and there's nothing. Um, well, I, I don't want to say there's nothing I enjoy more, but I because I would never, you know, I never want to have to call somebody who's got this. But this is part of the responsibility that comes with going through that is that you help the next person through it. And so that's, um, you know, that's that's you know one of those things where, where I think about the people that I've met. Um, and the opportunity I've had to share that trust God period um, in relation to my cancer story, and I wouldn't change any of this. You know, I wouldn't, you know, when you think about the circumstances of your life um, and you say, well, I, if I could go back, I, I'd make the baseball team. Or if, I'd go, if I could go back, I would, I would do this, or I would have married this girl, or I would have, you know, no. If, if, you know, as, as difficult maybe personally as that was, I wouldn't change it uh, because it's molded me into the person that I that I think I need to be. With it, you know, so that's sometimes it's you know people shake their head. There, what can, what do you mean? Now, look, um, I look at Michael too. I mean, I'd like to see Michael be able to walk, you know, all of his life, but I couldn't. You know, that's not the way his life played out so here i but i look at i look at his 
I look at his situation and I and I say, um, he's right where he needs to be, and he was made exactly the way he's supposed to be made, and um, and that's part of his story. Same with me and cancer. You know, it's like, all right, well, uh, we've all got stuff, and this was mine, and um, we'll just see how God uses it. Beautiful how you've allowed him to use it and continue to encourage people that way. I imagine one way uh, that you have to lean on God on a daily basis is every time you walk into that studio and say, Lord, what am I going to manage today with Shaquille (laughs) O'Neal, Charles Barkley, and Kenny Smith? How about that for a segue? Um, (laughs) those three, like that shows just magic. It just is. And and it's chemistry you guys have and the respect you guys have. I, what is it like to try to wrangle them every day? And, and what's a, what are your best stories of working elbow to elbow with, I want each guy. What is the best story that you can tell me for each guy? Oh man. Um, well, I think, I mean, I worked with Kenny first. Kenny was there before Charles got there, before Shaq got there. Uh, and I just remember, I remember with Kenny just telling Tim Kiley, our producer, after working with Kenny a couple of times while he was still in the league and, and close to retirement, I said, man, when this guy, when this guy uh, calls it quits, we got to have him. He's just a natural. He's that good. And, and, um, uh, for Charles, it was it was just like um, it's one thing to be outspoken and opinionated and and be the the most sought after soundbite in the world when you're a player, um, and and have people say, "Boy, but if if he ever got on TV, he'd be great." Because I've seen guys who are really good as players, you know, and and, and are good soundbites, and then the red light goes on on TV, and it's like they don't want to be that forthcoming. It, it's a whole Charles different animal, too. Yeah, to Charles. Yeah, to Charles. Spread He was the same guy on TV that he was as a player, and so um, you know, never afraid to voice his opinion, and and um, and didn't care what you thought. Um, so, I think that uh, you know, the first one, like the first night we were on uh, together, Charles came out and asked Kenny what he was going to say about something. You know, in the in the first segment of halftime, and Kenny said, "You'll find out," and that set the tone for the way we would do the show for years. Was that look? We're not rehearsing anything. You're not. You don't. I'm not going to tell you what I'm going to say. You're going to react to what I say, and I want to see what you say. And I think that's been that's been the most fun for the that makes this makes the show so much fun. But these guys, you know, had a diaper changing contest one one night because Kenny had <laughs> been on. Kenny been, you know, had a couple of weeks off to be with his wife after the birth of a child, and so yeah, I've been changing diapers. And Charles says, "No, you haven't." And before the night's over, we have a you know, diaper changing contest on the air. Um, you know, we got Chuck was so big when we when he started with us. You know, he said he was going to get down to his playing weight. He we he allowed us to weigh him on the air, Marty. You know, you know how many you know how many guys who are top 50 all time or hall of famers and that kind of thing would say, no, you can't, you can't do that to me. I'm not, I can't be, I'm not going to be made fun of, you know, I'm, I'm much too important for that. And, and here's Charles standing on a scale every two weeks 
trying to get down to under 300 pounds. And, and then when Shaq came along, he's like, he knew what, he knew what the show was about, but it also was almost to the point where, you know, he wanted it to be hilarious every night and force the issue. So he was always looking at me and saying, it'd really be funny if you push a Christmas tree over on me, or, you know, if you want to tase me, you know, I, you know, I've been to stunt school. I know how to, and it's like, we had to talk to him, Kenny and Chuck and I would say, Hey, look, we don't have to, you don't have to come up with something every, every night. You know, a lot of times, most of the stuff in our show that was funny was organic. You know, somebody misspeaks. Yeah. yeah somebody spills something on their tie and we, and we, you know, ride them on that for the next four minutes. So it's like, it's like, um, those were the kind of things that are unplanned that are, that make the, you know, make people the next day say, man, did you see those clowns on inside the NBA last night? Man, it was just ridiculous. And that's, that's kind of how we do our business. But uh, they all, they've all had in their own ways, just, you know, wonderful moments where, where you, and I don't, you know, when I get to think, I, I, when I get to work, I say, Oh Lord, I don't know what I did to deserve something this good, but thank you. Because, I have this job that I get to do, not a job I got to do. And this is what I get to do. Hang out with these guys, talk hoop, and know that when I go to work, I'm going to laugh. And that's a good thing. When Shaq fell off that stage, I'm surprised y'all didn't need diapers. It would have taken me 15 minutes to recover. It it wasn't my fault either, Marty. (laughs) He tried to lay it right on me. Remember, as soon as he had the ground, there do you set me up. You set me up. What do you? And like he thought I'd gotten on there and and wrapped the cable around his leg. Yeah, like I'm sitting here thinking, you know what would really be funny is if Shaq could do thousands of dollars of damage to the set right now, you know, <laughs> by ripping a monitor out, which is exactly what happened. I mean, he ripped the monitor out of the set, and you got to be a big man to do that. And you know, he's like, he gets that thing wrapped around his his leg, and and then he's going full bore trying to beat Kenny to the board and and that's one of those things that you realize how big and powerful the guy is ridiculous um but I mean yeah there have been so many of those moments uh on the air that uh, that you don't plan it's not like you sit in a production meeting and say okay then this is going to happen no it's the stuff that just happens in the course of being there that's what uh, that's what makes it memorable and that's what makes it unpredictable and I think that's what resonates with fans when they're sitting at home and say, look, I got no idea what's going to happen next on this show. So join the club because I don't either. And that's, and that's what makes it fun. It keeps it fresh. That and the authenticity. I mean, you just can't, that's not stuff you make up. That stuff's, that stuff's real. And it's beautiful to watch. Uh, I'll, I'll ask one more thing. I, I've already kept you like an hour. Um, I got, hey, Marty, I got nowhere to go, dude. <laughs> someone who is is so integral and and woven through the fabric of ESPN's evolution is Stuart Scott and yeah. he's so important to all of us and you did something I think it was 2015 16 somewhere around in there you won one of the 49 Emmys you have on your on your shelf and you gave that Emmy to Stuart's daughters why was that important for you to do that uh, because um, I had an idea of what their kids had gone through, uh, what Stewart's kids had gone through. Because when you when you get I mean, this guy goes back to being diagnosed with cancer, 
earlier in my life, you know, and I realized that cancer may attack one person, but it actually attacks the entire family because um, your wife is saying, what's this going to mean? Your kids are saying, how sick is dad, you know, and, and, um, and so I realized the toll it takes on a family and then, but, you know, I, what I don't realize and I have no experience with is how about when that, when cancer takes that person. <clears throat> and so seeing, you know, what Stuart had gone through and I just knew that that's, um, that it was weighing heavily, obviously on his, on his girls. And when we got to the, you know, look, when we're at the Emmys that night, everybody knew Stuart was going to win. Everybody knew he was going to win the Emmy for studio host. You know, it was just like, that's a, that's a no brainer. And, you know, and everybody's looking at each other and saying, you know, what's going to be great is when they announce his name and his daughters come up and they give the Emmy. And, and so I was looking forward to seeing that happen. Um, and, and I was the most surprised person in the room as my wife and I sat there when they announced me as the winner of that. And so, look, I, I didn't know what I was going to say, but I knew as I was walking up there with my wife, um, I said, I just know I'm not going to walk off the stage with this, with this statue. Uh, I just, I don't know how I'm going to get there, but I'm, but I think in time as I speak, you know, the words will come. And so I did. I just, I was like, I was like, there's only one place this trophy deserve, you know, needs to be, and that's on Stuart Scott's mantle. And so have the girls come up and, and, um, everybody would have done it, man. I mean, come on, uh, for what Stuart meant to so many folks. Um, that was the only thing to do. Well, it was a beautiful gesture as have so many things you've done throughout your career and use that platform for so much good and so many laughs and such great joy. It's awesome, man. And I appreciate you giving me a whole hour of your life. Uh, uh, it's been, it's been awesome to hear and I could spend another two. I mean, I have so many things I'd love to know. So maybe we'll do a 2.0 someday. Thank you. Man, I would, I would love to do that, Marty. And it's great talking to you. We're blessed, aren't we, man? I mean, beyond on, what we deserve. Yeah, I mean, this is this is even in in a time like this that's so uncertain. I mean, that's you know we uh, we can look around and, and and see our loved ones and 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 we know that we'll get through this. And in the in the meantime, we just uh, you know I, I'm always going to look I was going to look more on um, what we can do rather than what we, what we can't do and and how we're blessed and not how we're uh, how we're burdened. Appreciate you, man. Thank you so much. Appreciate, Have a great day. Y'all stay too, safe. Brother. And thank you for your example. Let's do it again sometime, man. I've said to him so many times, basically anytime I've seen him on the sidelines of games or, or at events or something, that his example to me is such a shining bright light. And with these platforms that we've been given and, and are so blessed to have, there comes responsibility. And part of that responsibility is paying it forward, which he discussed and always does. It is 
taking time for other people at all times. And he always does that for me. And it's his career is so unbelievable and his resume is so unbelievable and what he's accomplished and, and with whom he's accomplished it. I mean, if you look at the analysts that he's worked with throughout his career, it's not just the folks on inside the NBA. That just happens to be the current iteration and, and probably the most memorable because he is so adept. I can't begin to describe to you guys how good he is at what he does. And it's the same thing I said about Reese. The traffic cop that you have to be while still maintaining a sense of humor and you're listening to a producer in your right ear while you have your left ear trained on what whomever is saying is saying, it's a, it's a hell of a talent. And he is brilliant. He's just brilliant. And again, that, as I said to him right there, it's context and repetition. And he has done it so many times that it's second nature. He could do it in his sleep. He now has that chemistry built up over all these years with the individuals that are on that platform with him. And I don't know how long he's worked with his producer, but I imagine it's probably been a long time. And even if it was one day, he's so good at it that he would make that producer look brilliant. And what's so amazing about Ernie is all these accolades for what he does with Turner and TNT doesn't hold a light to what he is as a person. As a light. That's right. Uh, that's what I said to him. I mean, the, the way that he's used those platforms to, you know, be such an example to bring Michael in and, and listen to his wife's desire and his wife's passion to change the world and to change live a life or lives for other people and using their blessings to bless others. It's I say it all the time. Luke twelve forty eight in the Bible says, To whom much is given, much is required. And, you know, then that's been kind of turned into an adage that's to whom much is given, much is expected. And that is just the truth. When we have been offered, I ask every day, and I say this all the time about Tony Finau, when I met Tony, and he told me the whole story about being a light and knowing that was his life's purpose, which I wrote in Never Settle. I meant to say that's one of the things I wanted to discuss with Ernie that I didn't get the chance to because of time. Y'all, I got a text from Travis. I've, I've been talking to this man for 45 minutes. It felt like 45 seconds. He's like, bro, you're at 45 minutes. I mean, we got to let this guy go. We've kept him too long. And, you know, Ernie has a... Best, a New York Times best-selling book called Unscripted. And it's all about these things that we just discussed. It's, it's adopting Michael and adopting Carmen and bringing them in and, and affording them a better life. And, and looking at someone's plight, which Michael's situation was a plight. I mean, this is a, a child who had been completely forgotten and was considered damaged goods. And you heard Ernie say it right there. He's not, what, what, what was his exact words? He's not worth anything. E60 did a piece on Ernie and his family and how it went is his wife went there to adopt somebody. And at the time they wanted to adopt somebody that didn't have any sort of, you know, disabilities or whatever. But when she got there, she called him and said, you know, this is the one. And Ernie said, bring him home. And I, I've never heard the story about him finally saying his name. And I can only imagine the joy that a simple word 
brought that uh, over, overwhelming joy. I mean, because again, it's like that, that, that. There's two main legacies. There's several, several at this point. I'm I'm floored by the impact of this book, mine, and the tentacles and how far they're reaching. But one of those tentacles and the common thread is Olivia Quigley, and. Uh, what an unbelievable example she was, is, and will always be as long as I'm breathing because I carry her with me every single day. And she was a Special Olympics athlete, and she is a was an unbelievable global movement. And when these when these folks who have intellectual disabilities, uh, with I've met, I've met so many of them covering the Special Olympics in the United States, all over the place, and in Austria, and all over the world. When you meet these athletes and you, you see the joy that they have with, within them as people who have been told, you can't, you'll never, you're not good enough, don't try. Like, what in the world? And then when you see them do, it is a life-changing, life-altering moment that fills you with so much spirit and joy. And so... That's a guy, I mean, it must be such a challenge. And yet, that was their calling, and they heard that calling, and they heeded that calling, and Ernie heard Cheryl's beckoning and, and wishes and did not hesitate. And I loved hearing what he said about his wife because, like, so many things that he said, it was crazy. It was like I was listening to myself. And, I mean, you know, my greatest sounding board and my greatest perspective in my entire life is my wife because she doesn't see it the way that I see it. She doesn't have the same, like, I go, if, if I go and I do the best sit-down interview I've ever done with this athlete X, she's like, oh, okay, that's cool. And then she watches it. And if it's something that is of the human element, then she's engaged. She doesn't care if Tiger Woods has won five green jackets. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, Good for him. We, we've done, you know, a hundred plus of these and we did the masters and the guest that she's cared about is Tori Birch and Dempsey <laughs> and, and Chase Rice. That's it right there. <laughs> that's the list. That, that's it. And it's beautiful. It's awesome. It's awesome. Uh, so look, man, I could go on for days and I do have so many more questions for Ernie and I love the whole thing about a father's favor and I still seek that every day. I still want to make my dad proud every day and my, my father has been deceased for 12 years. And so I just, I know, I know what I believe that moment must have felt like when your dad wants to work with you. I think about Dale Jr. It just keeps... That whole thing makes me think about Junior and what it was like spending his whole childhood trying to get his dad's attention and earn his father's favor. And then he got in a race car and was really good at it. And to see his father's pride in him, like when he won the Winston, that's so crazy. It was 20 years ago yesterday that Dale Jr. won the Winston as a rookie in the Cup Series in that Budweiser car and to see the way that his dad reacted. And when he won his first career race at Texas in a Cup car and to see his dad run into victory lane and grab onto Jade Gerst, the PR guy, and throw him the hell out of the way. Get out of the window. Get out of the way. That's my son right now. I'm proud of the guy that drives my car, but I am a right now I am a proud daddy. That's the ultimate, man. The ultimate. What a conversation. I really enjoyed that. Um, really enjoyed it. 
One of the coolest things that we've added to Marty Smith's America is Ask Marty. Y'all's questions are amazing and sometimes very difficult for me to answer uh, with my feeble mind. But we've loved it, and we appreciate the interaction and the engagement and your curiosity. So let's get to it, Travis. Uh, what do we got this week with Ask Marty? Well, before we get to the Ask Marty question, I want to read this tweet that we received from at Kevin AM 29 regarding last week's question marty you really got you got me with the mom on the boat man that was an awesome answer i lost my mother when i was 17 and she was 35 to cancer now being 36 everything you said hit me at right at home love your show so i just want to give a shout out to kevin for that tweet because that was uh, an awesome one and we we always talk about receiving some tweets and appreciate i wanted to give that one a shout out so that's it's so rough man um i appreciate Kevin, you sharing that with us, uh, with Travis and with me. It's so difficult. I mean, if you think about the math, if he, if Kevin was 17 when he lost his mom and he's 36 now, that means he's now lived more than half his life without her. And I just got there. I just got to that place where I've now lived more than half my life without my mother. And uh, that's a very hard thing to reconcile to. And you know, I'm 44 at this point. My mom was 47 when she passed away. And Lainey and I were talking about this the other day. You sit there and you go, when you know, when you're 22, 47 seems like it's a really long way away when you're, when you're 21, 22. And then as you age, you don't feel old. Like, I don't feel old, but I'm in my mid-40s. That's insane to me that I'm in my mid-40s. I have three children. I got two teenagers in the house. That's insane. And so, as I said at the beginning of the show, before our conversation with Ernie, it's interesting how I am, I, I am very guilty of what's next, what's next, what's next, what's next. Just continuing to beat that pavement. What's next, what's next? How can I do the next piece? What is the next assignment when it's so important for all of us to pause and that's one blessing that i can take personally from being home for the last four going on five months with the coronavirus pandemic is i've i'm so immersed in what's going on with my kids and whatnot but Parenting in this is its own challenge, and a lot of us are facing, you know, the, the whole thing with virtual school again, and that's uh, concerning. But all of it has reminded me to focus, genuinely focus on being where your feet are. If I'm in the lake with my kids, be in the lake with your kids emotionally and mentally. Don't be somewhere else where your phone is or don't be somewhere else where, you know, your mind is on that interview or whatever. Be where you are because where you are is, it only happens once. And those little people grow up so fast. And I'm just, I'm feeling that now with my youngest being eight and a half and Miss Independent. I mean... It's unbelievable, that one. But it just all goes really quick, man. And 
I hate I hate that that you lost mom so early, Kevin. I appreciate you listening, and I'm glad that that message about my mom resonated with you. It's sometimes difficult to talk about, especially with vulnerability and admitting that you kind of put some of that stuff away and you don't pull it out very often. Sometimes it takes somebody else being willing, not 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 able, but willing to articulate that for you to admit it to yourself. Uh, that's happened to me more times in my life than I could ever begin to to describe. Here's our other question, Marty. Coming from JB has 66. I think this one might be a little easier for you. Favorite Virginia Tech player growing up? So my fa- uh, my favorite Virginia Tech player ever is Michael Vick. Uh, but he doesn't count as growing up because uh, Michael came along in 99 and I was actually already out of college. So if he if Michael Vick would have come along one year earlier, I would have gotten to cover that guy. And that would have been holy smokes. Um, he was a video game, that cat. And one of my favorite moments I've ever had in this job was having the opportunity to sit across from Michael and play chess on the beach in Hollywood, Florida, and learn about his rehabilitation as a man by going to Leavenworth Prison after the Bad News Kennels dogfighting scenario. And this was before the 30 for 30 and all that. Uh, this was he, him and me uh, sitting on the beach, and I had learned through another piece that was written that Michael did not satiate his competitive drive, his competitiveness, while in prison for 23 months by lifting weights or playing basketball or whatever. He satiated his competitive drive by playing chess. And the way that he applied the lessons chess offers, I'm a total chess nerd, man. I was on the chess team from fourth grade until I graduated from high school. And it's a beautiful game. It's such a unique mental exercise. I've tried to teach it to Cameron. Uh, I'm getting there. I want to, I want him to know how to play it because of the, it, it enables you and it conditions your brain to think five moves from now, not the next move. It's just a, a beautiful vehicle for mental growth. And, what an amazing conversation with Michael. Uh, I feel like I pedal never settle every single week, but it's my podcast and it's my book, so why not, right? Uh, I wrote an entire chapter about that experience in my book, and I have gotten tremendous, tremendous feedback from people about what Michael said and the vulnerability with which he said it during that chapter. So um, in terms of my favorite player growing up, uh oh. I think I think the dog wants out, Travis. Sadie, Sadie, Sadie's Sadie. not happy. Sadie, calm down. Calm down a minute. Hold on, dude. Let me see. One of my kids must have just woke up. I don't know what that was about. I'm holding her now. Anyway, uh my favorite player growing up was Antonio Freeman. And if you know anything about him, he had a really good career at Virginia Tech, but then he went on to the Green Bay Packers and had 
and just an unbelievable pro career with being Brett Favre's number one target forever in Green Bay. And watching him play, man, Jim Druckenmiller was the quarterback, and, and Druck was this huge – I mean, he's a real big guy, especially in that era. I mean, he was like 6'5", maybe, and had a cannon for an arm. And he would throw 50-yard lasers to, to Antonio. And those were – I also have this – you know, there's this vision of those uniforms – those Virginia Tech uniforms were very different than the ones that they have now, which are predominantly maroon. Back then, they had white face masks, which were just kick ass. And they it's just, um, I love the feeling of that, that nostalgia and what that felt like to be able to go sit in Lane Stadium and watch those teams play. Um. But yeah, man, it's uh, it's free. In fact, we might, Travis, we might need to get him on the podcast. How about that? So that's our homework. We're gonna we're gonna chase him down. We appreciate you guys listening so much. Thank you for investing in Marty Smith's America. Uh, we love doing this. Thanks so much to Ernie Johnson for the amazing message that he shared with us about an amazing life lived and and how he continues to be a light and a man of faith, and he really inspires me, and uh, I admire him so much. So thanks so much to, to, to Ernie for being here. Um, we might have to use him to recruit Shaq and, and Chuck, because I know y'all want to hear from those two. I mean, how fun would it be to have Shaq and Chuck? Um, really appreciate our law enforcement officials working so hard to keep our community safe. Thank you to our fire and rescue folks who uh, are running into burning buildings, risking their lives to save lives. Thank you to our first responders. And I'm really grateful for our military. We live in the greatest nation in the world. It's a free nation. And I'm thankful for the men and women who sacrifice so that we can be free. Have an amazing week. Thank you all for listening. That's Marty Smith's America.